Are we working? Can y'all hear me? Hey, cool. So as you guys can tell, I am not John Ray. Actually, I wanted to point something out, and some of you who've been here a little bit longer than I am can maybe put me to rights if I'm wrong, but I think this is the very first all-female-led grace worship service in our church's history. Yeah. So, you know, God uses all kinds of people. And uh, Bailey, thank you for leading worship. You're amazing. Linda did the kids. Anna's doing benediction. We got girls handing out communion. We're just, we're going to rock it today as long as I uh, do my part, right? So anyways, I'm Amy. Uh, I'm glad you guys are here. I'm part of the teaching team, which is why maybe you guys don't see me as much. I prefer to give my input and let other people run with it. But, um, but this week it did. It came to me. And so I hope I do my best to give this Acts chapter 8 um, what it deserves. Um, I know some of you guys are listening. No, we're not. Are we podcasting today? I don't see our camera. You don't think so? Cool. Well, hey, you guys, you're here in person. You get the benefit of hearing this. Um, Way to go. (laughs) Anyway, so as I was thinking through the sermon, um, I know a lot of people like to enter in with some anecdotes, something, some cool life story, and I thought, yeah, my life story is kind of more like how to get the book of Proverbs all wrong, and that's really outside the scope of today's worship service. Um, so I started kind of thinking through some other maybe um, anecdotes, and I, I thought about the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as, um, as a foreman. And if any of you guys have ever been around building and construction, you know, the foreman's the guy who kind of checks the blueprints and encourages the workers and makes sure that they're on task. Um, it's less like a power tool to be used. And so in the creative world, um, there's this app called Pinterest where you can pin all sorts of ideas on these online cork boards, maybe something you'll use later. I think a lot of people use it sort of wistfully, like, oh, that's the house I'll never have, but if I did have it, it would have this tile. Or that's the meal I'll never eat, but if I did eat it, it would be this recipe. Um, and so I think God kind of has a little bit of a pin board, maybe, um, but I think that he gets to actualize his Pinterest board through the Holy Spirit. Um, So my great-grandparents owned this house. It was a beautiful turn-of-the-century house right on the beach in Biloxi. I mean, it was just amazing. They had a koi fish pond and everything. It had been in our family for decades and decades. And it survived Camille in 1969. That was a big one. I don't know if you guys remember that one. Some of you older folks might eat thumbs up. Um, But it didn't survive Katrina in 2004. It finally, that was all the house could handle, and it came down. Um, And so I thought about maybe the early church God's temple, his people being his home. And what if when the Holy Spirit came in with its gale force wind, this home was upended and God got to use his Pinterest board to sort of rework his home, enlarge it, include everyone, right? So imagine if you guys had to redo your house, what would you do? Donnie, you can switch to the next slide. There you go. Y'all can look at that while I'm talking. It's a good one. Would you have vaulted ceilings? His and hers sinks, right? Um, and so God is including his house, not just for his and her sinks, but he's expanding it to include magicians, Samaritans, and even eunuchs. And so we're going to see that in today's chapter, but let's pray first when we get there. God, we bless you, and we thank you for giving us the freedom to worship on Sundays, the freedom to read your Bible, and to come together, and to bounce ideas off one another, and to figure out what it is exactly that your Holy Spirit wants from us here at Grace. Lord, I ask that you calm my nerves, and that you empty me so that this isn't the Amy show, but that this is God. Lord, I ask that you interpret for us, and that you mediate with us. And Lord, we love you, and we praise you. Amen. All right. 
Will you go to the text? I'm going to have to turn and read. And Saul was right there congratulating the killers. That set off a terrific persecution in the church of Jerusalem. The believers were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, all that is but the apostles. Good and brave men buried Stephen, giving him a solemn funeral. Not many dry eyes that day. And Saul just went wild, devastating the church, entering house after house after house, dragging men and women off to jail. Forced to leave their home base, the followers of Jesus all became missionaries. Wherever they were scattered, they preached the message about Jesus. Going down to a Samaritan city, Philip proclaimed the message of the Messiah. When the people heard what he had to say and saw the miracles, the clear signs of God's action, they hung on his every word. Many who could neither stand nor walk were healed that day. The evil spirits protested loudly as they were sent on their way. And what joy in the city! Previous to Philip's arrival, a certain Simon had practiced magic in the city, posing as a famous man and dazzling all the Samaritans with his wizardry. He had them all, from little children to old men, eating out of his hand. They all thought he had supernatural powers and called him the great wizard. He had been around a long time, and everyone was more or less in awe of him. But when Philip came to town, announcing the news of God's kingdom and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, they forgot Simon and were baptized, becoming believers right and left. Even Simon himself believed and was baptized. From that moment, he was like Philip's shadow, so fascinated with all the God signs and miracles that he wouldn't leave Philip's side. When the apostles in Jerusalem received the report that Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John down to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Up to this point, they had only been baptized in the name of the Master Jesus. The Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen on them. Then the apostles laid their hands on them, and they did receive the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the apostles, by merely laying on hands, conferred the Spirit, he pulled out his money, excited, and said, Tell me your secret. Show me how you did that. How much do you want? Name your price. Peter said, To hell with your money, and you along with it. Why, that's unthinkable. Trying to buy God's gift? You'll never be part of what God is doing by striking bargains and offering bribes. Change your ways, and now, ask the master to forgive you for trying to use God to make money. I can see this is an old habit with you. You reek with money lust. Oh, said Simon, pray for me. Pray to the master that nothing like that will ever happen to me. And with that, the apostles were on their way, continuing to witness and spread the message of God's salvation, preaching in every Samaritan town they passed through on their return to Jerusalem. Later, God's angel spoke to Philip. At noon today, I want you to walk over to that desolate road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. He got up and went. He met an Ethiopian eunuch coming down the road. The eunuch had been on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and was returning to Ethiopia, where he was minister in charge of all the finances of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He was riding in a chariot and reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit told Philip, climb into the chariot. Running up alongside, Philip heard the eunuch reading Isaiah and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He answered, how can I without some help? And he invited Philip into the chariot with him. The passage he was reading was this, as a sheep led to slaughter and quiet as a lamb being sheared, he was silent, saying nothing. He was mocked and put down, never got a fair trial. But who now can count his kin since he's been taken from the earth? The eunuch said, tell me, who is the prophet talking about, himself or some other? Philip grabbed his chance. Using this passage as his text, he preached Jesus to him. As they continued down the road, they came to a stream of water. The eunuch said, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? 
He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down to the water, and Philip baptized him on the spot. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of God suddenly took Philip off, and that was the last the eunuch saw of him. But he didn't mind. He had what he'd come for, and he went on down the road as happy as he could be. Philip showed up in Azotus and continued north, preaching the message in all the villages along that route until he arrived at Caesarea. That's kind of a long one, but if you notice, at the very beginning, we kind of had a dangling sentence to deal with, and Saul was right there congratulating the killers. Looks like a remnant maybe from chapter 7, but it's kind of a chilling verse. Saul's almost delighting in his murderous zealotry, right? But since it's kind of just dangling there without closure, I'm left with the feeling that this persecution and this Saul guy is still raising a ruckus in the background of our story. So for those who don't mind a spoiler, in a few chapters, Saul's going to have a conversion on the road to Damascus, right? And he's going to receive a new command from God to go from persecutor to ambassador of God's word. And Saul will become Paul, and God will redeem him. But until then, for our story, it's Saul the persecutor. Now, before Jesus had left his disciples, he told them that he would carry his message away from Israel and Judea to the surrounding regions and eventually to the end of the earth. So that's kind of been going on for all of Acts, is they're just sort of biding their time, right? In the previous chapter, chapter 7, Stephen was just martyred for his faith. Um, But he was martyred inside of Jerusalem. So how come these guys are still hanging around? I think it's kind of human nature to enjoy comfort, right? And it's no doubt that this fledgling church was really enjoying the comforts that Jerusalem offered. And maybe that's why we don't see them taking the message to the ends of the earth with any haste. Right? But the Holy Spirit came, and it spread through the church like wildfire, and they started throwing out the name of Jesus. We call it Jesus Jukes, doing Jesus Jukes left and right, right? And it got everyone riled up, especially the Jewish authorities. And it was kind of the uh, the confrontation here was kind of the catalyst for the explosion of the church. It's why we're going to see Philip go down to the the Gaza Road and Samaria. So So Philip finds himself first in Samaria, which is the home of the kind of despised backwater cousins of the Jews. They're not exactly Jews, they're not exactly Gentiles. Everyone just kind of leaves them alone. Like, um, I was thinking about the National Lampoons, Cousin Eddie, right? No one really wants to hug Cousin Eddie. They're like, oh, thank you, Cousin Eddie. It's kind of the Samaritans or Cousin Eddie. Anyway, so Philip starts to preach and he begins to cast out demons, heal the sick, and many come to believe, and all were filled with joy. I mean, these people were kind of primed for Philip. It's not like he really did any hard work, right? He just kind of shows up and they're like, yes, heal me, I believe. And I can't help but wonder if maybe the anonymous woman at the well who encountered Jesus, the Samaritan woman, if maybe she wasn't the first missionary. Maybe she didn't take that message back um, all those years ago and say, I met the Messiah at a well. And maybe that's why the Samaritans are primed. But I don't know. She's never given a name, though. But she was important enough for Christ to talk to and send back to the Samaritans. But anyways, Philip doesn't seem to mind all that. He doesn't mind that God's interested in the Samaritans either. Right? So for a time, the Jews were like, I'm not the Samaritans. They don't really belong to our house. Um, So it's kind of a radical mindset that Philip's got here. He could have ignored the Samaritans. It would have been easy. But he didn't. He jumped right on into the fray. And so among these super-primed Samaritans that Philip encounters is a man called Simon. Um, Sometimes in extra-biblical accounts, he's referred to as Simon Magus, um, which just means magician. Some people credit him with starting Gnosticism, which is like heresy light. um, But that's kind of a disputed topic. Um, You guys can dig if you really want to know more. Anyways, the Simon performed miracles and magic tricks, and then he sees this power, a power greater than his, and Philip, and John, and Peter, and he's like, whoa, I want that. So he goes as far as to even offer money to buy God the Spirit. 
Peter responds in kind of Peter fashion. He's real feisty. You and your money can go straight to hell, right? He's a little bit incensed that this guy wants to abuse the power, that he thinks the Holy Spirit's a power tool, right? Um, I was kind of thinking about prosperity preachers who use Jesus the same way, right? We have the advantage of Instagram. Do any of you guys follow preachers and sneakers? Yeah, girl, your hand went right up. Mm-hmm. So we have that advantage. We can see the pitfalls of the prosperity gospel. But Peter, Peter had only intuition and some pretty harsh words, right? The kingdom of God is not for sale, he admonishes. Kingdom of God is not for sale. So I sometimes wonder if our statements like, we're going to conquer the world for Christ, are really just thinly veiled attempts to grab at power, right? Or maybe money lust. Do we notice it if that overtakes us? Do we really mean we want to conquer the world for Christ? Or is this, is this some sort of other desire? But maybe we get the story all wrong. What if we look at Simon with empathy? So in our teaching meeting this week, um, Bailey was really gracious. She pointed out that maybe this guy's just operating from a position of ignorance, not malice. Maybe he'd spent his whole life earning a living as a magician, and he thought, man, I can cash in on that, you know, kind of unthinkingly. As a Peter, I'm really feisty. I was kind of ready with the to hell with you bit. Um, but I don't know if it was going to work that way. I think that he didn't want to abandon a new faith, but neither did he want to starve. I should have sympathized with him, and I didn't. If Jesus is what God has to say, then compassion ought to be my angle, right? The risen Jesus shows us exactly how God wants to deal with us. When Christ rose, he didn't rise in condemnation or annoyance. He wasn't like, oh, what are you guys doing here crying in my grave? He said, woman, why are you weeping? He was hurt. <clears throat> and even though he missed the point, I think that Simon Magus' harsh scolding was probably more a product of Peter's nature than his transgression. It was. And that's if we look at this with um, a lens of compassion on Simon. But there's another reason that the kingdom of God is not for sale. Because as soon as we put a price tag on something, it becomes prohibitive for a multitude of people. Right? Price tags exclude people just by nature. Only the privileged and the wealthy could obtain God's kingdom if we were to make it for sale. Right? Have any of you guys ever been through perspectives? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah? So perspectives on the Christian movement or the world movement is, um, is sort of like a several-week course where you learn about missions in the world and God's heart for the kingdom. And it's pretty cool. You get to hear missionaries from all over. It's, it's interesting. I think Grace has hosted a few of those in the past. Anyways, when I was in it uh, about 10 years ago, oh, thank you, so sweet, a man named Dennis Cochran and his wife Nancy came from the jungles of Peru to my little city of Conway. Anyways, they had been working as Wycliffe Bible translators since the 60s. I mean, these people were out there in cat-eye Ray-Bans, translating the gospel while Elvis had heart, like, chart-topping hits on the radio. That's how long they lived in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, right? And so their, their technique was sort of storying, where they start from the Bible at the beginning, and they story it to this oral culture, right, it's until they get to the birth and then death of Jesus. Anyways, but when they did get to the death of Jesus, they hit a snag, Right? Because right before he dies, Jesus says, what, I'm the bread of life? Right? This is my body broken for you. They couldn't call Jesus the bread of life. Nobody in Papua New Guinea eats bread, literally. Everybody eats yams. The old, the young, breakfast, lunch, dinner, you get yams. Right? Um, and they did, I gotta lie, they did have bread in Papua New Guinea, um, but you could only buy it in the capital because it had to be flown in from another country. 
Thus, it was super, super expensive. So if the Cochrans had been unflexing, if they had been rigid in their cultural notion of Jesus as the bread of life, they would have excluded every islander there. Nobody would have wanted something out of reach. I can't afford Jesus as the bread of life. So he made a snap decision. He said, Jesus is the yam of life, not the bread of life. He's the ubiquitous yam, right? And so the Dana people, the people that they worked with in the, um, the jungles of Papua New Guinea, readily accepted Jesus. I mean, the whole, the whole tribe was like, yes, this is my Jesus. And they would never have known the Redeemer if he had put a price tag on Jesus. Jesus, by his very nature, must be accessible to all people. Because if the good news isn't also good news for the poor, it's not good news. That's not. If Peter had actually sold Simon Magus, the spirit, how many Samaritan bystanders would have gone home dejected, penniless, and without their redeemer? Right? And so I think Philip and Dennis and Peter are here to say, no, Jesus is the yam of life. God's kingdom is not for sale. So if the gospel does become exclusionary through an act of ignorance or an act of malice, we do some damage. We take a little bit of collateral damage. God wants to use us, but if we inhibit the kingdom through these exclusionary means, he finds a way around us. I was thinking of you two, where he, Bono sings with or without you. It's a lot better with us, um, but he will move without us. It's not as pleasant, I don't think. Will Williamon said, the gospel is always intruding where it's not wanted. Jesus is always showing up where he's not invited. And so it's our duty to strip the baggage that we've put onto the gospel so that all who hear our story may believe. Anyway, so our story then segues, with the aid of an angel, to the Gaza Road and an Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot. Now, this Ethiopian eunuch was definitely not a Jew, not even a close cousin, and he was most definitely ritually unclean. Uh, in fact, Deuteronomy 23 echoes Leviticus, which says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. I did not memorize that one in Awanas. I don't think you guys did either. So, so here's this ritually unclean but influential Ethiopian eunuch riding in a chariot and reading from a scroll of Isaiah on a dusty, desolate road. He had gone to Jerusalem with the intention of worshiping in the temple, knowing, knowing darn well he was going to be turned away. But there he was, reading the scroll, trying to make sense of this little spark of faith and curiosity. For a little bit of clarification on this, the eunuch was probably reading aloud because that's how they read a uh, long time ago. He was also extremely wealthy, if he could even afford a scroll. And also, he was familiar with the Old Testament, which is kind of strange. But I did some digging, and it turns out that the Old Testament was likely brought back a thousand years ago when the Queen of Sheba went to visit King Solomon's kingdom. And she brought it back to the Ethiopians. So they owned scrolls, but that wasn't enough. The Ethiopians had no idea how to interpret them. As we see, he's, he's super confused, right? They didn't have the benefit of a Christ-centered hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is sort of like a lens, a way of looking at scripture and interpreting it. So I'm going to transition here real quick, if you'll let me. I have to make at least one Tolkien reference. If you guys know me, you know I'm a huge, huge nerd, especially for fantasy, um, if you want to throw it up. So in The Hobbit, they, there's a quest to recover the ancient homeland of the dwarves, the Lonely Mountain, as you can see there with the dragon above it. That's the Lonely Mountain. Um, it was the ancient homeland of the dwarves. Anyway, so uh, this band of dwarves hire a hobbit named Bilbo, at the request of the wizard Gandalf to go on this journey. 
Now, the leader of the dwarves is named Thorn Oakenshield, and he has with him his grandfather's map, an ancient map that gives a secret entrance to the Lonely Mountain. And if you see the dragon above, it can't go to the front door because there's a dragon named Smaug blocking the front entrance. Right? So they need this map, and they need this key to sneak in the back way to retake their homeland. But Thorn doesn't have a key. He just has a map. Uh, until they meet Elrond, the elf in Rivendell. And curiously, Elrond kind of holds up the map in the moonlight, and suddenly these moon runes show through. It took moonlight to illuminate this ancient hidden text. And so it, it needed a key, right? So without Elrond's help, the party would have failed from the get-go. And I think God's kingdom also has a map, but it needs a key. And we can't decipher it without the lens of Christ, kind of like how Thorin couldn't crack the code without Elrond. And I think that means that we need each other when we interpret scripture. Now, you've heard it said maybe scripture interprets scripture, but I think that we need each other. We don't read scripture in isolation. We don't practice our faith in isolation. As Tech Sample said, we're all beggars telling other beggars where the bread is, right? So the Holy Spirit promises to be in our midst when we come together. And I think that's why God has called Philip out to that dusty desert highway to jump onto a moving chariot with just the right key for this girl's um, interpretation. The eunuch needed Philip. And, and I'll be honest here, I don't like to rely on other people. Um, it's, I'd rather do things on my own. To me, you guys may be really independent that way. Um, in fact, I actually applied to seminary a year ago, and I got in. I turned it down to, to pursue a traditional master's here. Um, but the process to apply, just to even apply, involved a slew of psych tests and personality tests. And to get my scores, I had to go before a psychologist and a minister, and the psych said, I'm gonna stop you right now and tell you, I've been giving out this test for 30 years. I have never had anyone score as high on you as the preferred to work alone category. Like you are the most independent person I've ever had score on this test in 30 years. I'm, I'm kind of allergic to teamwork, y'all. But Jesus doesn't leave me alone, thankfully. And every year I see the need for collaboration more and more because isolation is not in our original design. As much as I wish it were, it's not. Um, to our Ethiopian. He's lonely. He's on this journey. Um, now remember, he's also wealthy, and he's educated, but that's not enough. He needs a key. Like, despite all of that, he's just this guy who doesn't know what he's doing, right? Um, he may have had high standing in, Can in Candace's courts, but because he was an, uh, a eunuch, he was still kind of kept down there. And that's the reason that a lot of queens chose eunuchs, is because they couldn't meddle in the ways that other men could meddle, uncut men. And I'm not talking just physically. I mean, this guy's psyche wasn't even spared. He was just low, right? Um, but that humility, that humility kept him going. Um, the desire to know God was there, and he had hoped God desired to know him, and God obliged. Sometimes our power lust and our greed can kind of interfere with that desire. Maybe we don't recognize the Holy Spirit. Maybe we don't partake in God's kingdom as we should. But humility checks that, right? Simon Magus rejected the Spirit with his actions, but the eunuch was not rejected by virtue of who he was. Brian Zahn said this, and I love it. It's uh, talking about God desiring us. He said, what sinners need, shall we say deserve, is love and healing, not torture and death. We are worthy of God's love and healing, not on the basis of personal merit, but because of the image we bear, the very image of God. Original blessing is more original than original sin. So having wholly rejoiced at this revelation, at this key that Philip has brought to him, that Jesus Christ with the Messiah was led like a lamb to the slaughter for the salvation of all humankind, 
The eunuch points to the only oasis on this road, you guys. There's literally one oasis, and that's exactly where Philip finds him. And he points to it, and he's like, so you can baptize me, even me, like right now? Like, this guy has no chill, but he's humble about it. And so Philip baptizes him right away. And in that very moment, I think that we kind of fulfill Isaiah 56. It declared, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses the things that please me, I hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I think Mary's song, The Magnificat, that the lowly be raised up, I think that was fulfilled in this moment. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Christ delivered, he said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. I think that was made reality in the conversion of this eunuch too. But the eunuch's not done. He then takes this message on his merry way back to Ethiopia, and he recognized as the first missionary to the Ethiopians. Um, he planted the seed that would blossom into the Coptic church. They claim this guy as their like, founder, you guys. And so once again, somebody completely nameless has taken the name or the word of God to the ends of the earth, right? And I think God likes to take credit. I think they're not named because God says, that's me, that's my glory, that's my strength and my power. But it shows us something else. That ministry is for everyone, not just the rarefied few. I mean, hello. But I also wonder if the encounter didn't deepen Philip's faith too. Through the conversation, was Philip ever in awe of this man's perseverance to know the God that he's reading about? What does he do with this little spark of faith? And so when Philip sees that God is enlarging his kingdom, does it enlarge his faith as well? I think it's deepened, you guys. And so once his faith is deepened and his work is done, Philip is wading out of the water and whisked off on another adventure because God kind of has a flair for the dramatic like that. I think it nurtures our imaginations so that when we look at this dusty, desolate, bleak reality that we live, we know that it doesn't have to be that way, right? There's a new kingdom on the horizon and it's full of splendor and it's full of wonder. Um, We glimpse the narrow way in moments like this, just slivers of it like maybe looking through a glass darkly or, or walking a razor's edge. I like to think of it as a fine seam being sewn together. It's not, the narrow way is not like an express line ticket to get out of here. That's not at all what it is. I think it's the seam of two realities, and Jesus commands both now, here. See, if, if Jesus' message were only, I can command one reality, but only once you die, it's kind of impotent and weak and lame and unnecessary because our faith happens in the present, because this life matters too. So another, I'm going to go back to Tolkien now, you guys, because I, I can't not. In the Silmarillion, which is sort of the prequel, it's the cosmology of all of Middle-earth that the Lord of the Rings takes place in, it begins with one, Iru, who is sometimes called Iluvatar. He makes Arda, and the Iluvatar also makes the Ainurs, the holy ones, Um, So his first act of creation is to create these beings to inhabit this new realm that he's made. And he calls them all together, and Iluvatar says, I have a project for you. I'm going to quote some Lord of the Rings here, so you'll bear with me. Of the theme that I have declared to you, I will now make that ye together in harmony make a great music. And since I have kindled you with the flame imperishable, you shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme, each with his own thoughts and devices, if he will. But I will sit and hearken and be glad that through you, great beauty has been wakened into song. Now, obviously, it's sort of a magic music, right? Influenced by Iluvatar, who kind of honors the creative independence that the Ainur are given. 
And so they sing these songs and their melodies flow together in harmony. Some sing of trees and rivers and mountains, others sing of stars and planets. And eventually the melodies solidify into a reality that the Ainur can then inhabit and it sort of becomes part of Middle Earth that we see. But there is one who sings loudly and out of theme in his arrogance and his like, lust for power. It's Melkor. And his, his theme has embedded chaos and turmoil into this beautiful new creation, right? And Tolkien describes Melkor's song not as jarring, but as dull and boring. So God's kingdom is not going to be dull and boring, you guys. It's not out of tune. But it will be glorious, something for all to marvel at. So if you think about Ephesians 3, Donna, you can flip. We're kind of a... Here you go. So that's an ancient Ethiopian Coptic manuscript. One more. That's actually Lothlorien, which we're going to get to in a minute, so you guys can focus on that if you want. Um, so in Ephesians 3, Paul writes, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for the ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was to now, through the church, make the manifold wisdom of God known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what, what Paul is saying here in Ephesians is that God is using his work, us, to put on this huge display for all of existence to marvel at, right? I'm thinking of the Ainur and their song in creating this new world. To this idea, Miriam Marston wrote, as with the Iluvatar presenting the vision of Arda, God has placed a heavenly vision in our hearts, and it's our great task to persevere in the building of the kingdom, which reflects all the designs that he had in mind since before time began. Years later, Sam and Frodo are going to reach an unspoiled elven kingdom called Lothlorien. And Sam will remark, it's more elvish than anything I ever heard tell of. It feels as if I was inside a song, if you take my meaning. Not a good Sam. But the Christian does take Sam's meaning, right? We do. We're living in the grandest song, singing in the grandest choir at the same time that existence has ever known. So if you've ever been left out, rejected, or just uninvited, you kind of know the depressing feeling that comes with that. And as big and as varied as God's song is, so too is his choir. This song kicked off a long, long time ago, y'all, but it still rages. The Holy Spirit still gives us the words to sing. When the world says, keep away, we say, come in. When the world looks down its nose, we wash feet. And when the world charges an entrance fee, we proclaim, sing freely. So if the worship team wants to come up, we will sing freely in just a minute. It's sort of an odd concept. It looks foreign to the world that wants to keep its status quo, but we have to resist that temptation. We have to be aware of the comfort and the pull to stay comfortable that comes with the status quo. It's going to take a lot of self-awareness, y'all, a lot of gut checks. Um, we're going to mess up a lot. That's what the Holy Spirit is here for, is to encourage us and to redirect us as we require. We're worded differently. We kind of straddle a here and a not yet, which is strange. Stanley Havros says it this way. He says that we are resident aliens. We believe that many Christians do not fully appreciate the odd way in which the church, when it is most faithful, goes about its business. We want to claim the church's oddness as essential to faithfulness. Flannery O'Connor said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. I like that one. So now we're tasked with disciple-making. So we go where the, mission, or where the Spirit is moving. Our lives are missional. Whenever gospel crosses a boundary, that's mission. 
So are we that kind of odd, you guys? Are we odd enough to offer the Holy Spirit to magicians? Odd enough to jump into chariots to call Jesus the yam? Are we odd enough? Behold, he's still doing a new thing. He's still pulling all of us together with the gravity of love. And that's good news. And others need to hear it. They are dying to hear it. What would happen if we kept that out of reach? Either through our ignorance or through our malice. I don't know. I don't know what our songs would be like if Christ never left heaven, or if Bilbo never left the Shire, or if the Cochrans never left Illinois. I can't answer these questions because I'm still trying to answer them for myself, but I do know that we need each other. Thank you.